Acts chapter 9 this morning. We're going to get into Acts chapter 9 <clears throat> and come to uh, this, uh, this great passage of Scripture. Um, our family, well, I say our family. Uh, I and the, me and the, the, the girls are Star Wars fans, and we like Star Wars. There was a new one that came out uh, earlier this year called The Mandalorian, and I don't know if you people are Star Wars fans much or not, but the, uh, a news story about The Mandalorian. <clears throat> one of the phrases in The Mandalorian that keeps getting repeated is he, he makes this statement, uh, this is the way. This is the way. And it's a statement about being what this Mandalorian is. So it's not about birth, but it's about a code. So the way they live, this is the way we live. It's a code by which they live by, a way of life. When we come here to our passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 9, you're all wondering how does Star Wars fit into Acts chapter 9. But in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, it tells us that the Christians at this point in history were referred to as people of the way. Uh, that was how they were known. So before we were known as Christians, which comes a little later and is a derogatory term, people of, of Jesus Christ, the follower of Jesus Christ, were known as people of the way. And just like its use in that Star Wars show, The Mandalorian, which says this is the way, and it's meant to represent a code or a way of life, that's what this meant to the people, to the followers of Jesus Christ at this time. When they were described as being people of the way, it was speaking about a way of life. Uh, it didn't have to do with, with birth, but it had to do with the way you, you lived, the code that you followed. Uh, it was probably derived from Jesus' words in John chapter 14 and verse 6. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the way. And then, um, but it may also have reference not just to those words of Jesus, but to the way that those words were followed. That uh, the believers were, were passing through this life, following Jesus on the way to eternal life. That they were following the way of Jesus. Believers and uh, their life is a journey that begins and ends with Jesus. We are genuinely a people of the way. And I, I like that, that title or that description of Christians, uh, that we are people of the way. When we come here to Acts chapter 9, we come to the great passage of the conversion of Saul. And in the conversion of Saul, we see how Jesus is the way of salvation how he changes things and how he is, in fact, the way, and that in salvation we must follow him along the way. So let's read this morning in Acts chapter 9. We're going to read the first 19 verses uh, here of, uh, that give us account of Saul's conversion to Christianity. And it says here, Then Saul, still, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him, to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were on the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, 
I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise, and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hand on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning in one of these great, great passages and illustrations of the power and transform, transforming power of the gospel, Give us understanding, encouragement, and strength. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> this event here seems to be the event Luke has been longing to tell us. It's probably the event we've been waiting for most. We get to Acts and it, well, I know this one. This is an exciting part of, of Acts. It kind of begins... Everything. Luke has been teasing us with this moment since Acts chapter 7, with Stephen's death, interjecting Saul's name and his actions into those events, preparing us for this moment in Acts chapter 9. It is perhaps one of the most famous of conversion stories in all of history. But God has been doing uh, amazingly saving people throughout history. We sing the, uh, one of his songs, and, and will next week, by John Newton, Amazing Grace. You know, we know perhaps is his best song, the most well-known Christian song in all of, all of history, I think. But before his salvation, he was known as the great blasphemer. Even amongst the sailors, for which he was, uh, was, was part, the, the sailors who you know, were known as, as rough and, and vulgar people looked on him as, man, he's, he's beyond us. He was uh, one who even the sailors would call the great blasphemer. 
March 21, 1748. He's on his ship. He's captaining a, a, a ship. The ship has been in a storm. It is now the 11th day. So fierce is this storm that half of the ship is gone. They are certain they are not going to make it out of this storm. They're bailing water. It's so bad that on the 11th day, the storm's so fierce that they tie John Newton to the helm of the ship just to keep him there so he doesn't get washed off into the sea to direct the storm. He writes of what went on as he was tied there thinking through that storm. And he writes later and says this, on that day, the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. You know, his testimony becomes one of the, the greats of, of history, like the one we have here of Saul. God does amazingly save people. Though not every conversion is dramatic. Not everybody is going to have that great dramatic conversion story like John Newton or like Saul. We still see the, the great universal truths of salvation. Every salvation is dramatic. Everyone is amazing and miraculous. And while we're not going to have experiences like Saul, there are certain things that we can learn that are true for all from the conversion of Saul. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter where you come from, Jesus is the way of salvation. He is, firstly, the way of rescue. He is the way of rescue. We see here with Paul, this conversion of Paul, and we'll read verses here in a moment where Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. He saw in his own life that he was the greatest of all sinners. He had a proud heritage, this Saul, uh, one who had a, a great legacy behind him. He goes by two names in, in Scripture. Here we see him as Saul. Saul is his Hebrew name. Uh, and being of the tribe of, of Benjamin and, and his Hebrew background, this is how he went by his Hebrew name. Later, as we see him traveling around the world, we see him use his Greek name more, which is Paul. Uh, so that is how he goes. Saul being his Hebrew, Paul his Greek name. He is naturally a remarkable man. He is quite unique and quite remarkable. What we, uh, what we know of his past shows us a man with impeccable pedigree, a striking background. And so he knew it too. He was a proud man. He knew how, how good he had it, what, what promise he had. And he was proud of what he had, and he endeavored to make the most of what he had. He was driven. He was zealous. And he would do whatever it took in Acts chapter 23 in verse 6. So this account of Saul's conversion is mentioned three times in Acts. That's how important it becomes to the, the, the movement of the story. And in one of those, in, in Acts chapter 23, as Paul describes him, he says, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. So he has this pedigree, this lineage to carry on. In chapter 26, he says, They knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. He says, my dad was a Pharisee, I'm a Pharisee, and everyone who knew me back then knew I was the most Pharisee of the Pharisees. I lived it. 
I, I breathed it. I was a Pharisee. And you know, here in verse 11 and in other places where it mentions to us all, it tells us that he is from a place called Tarsus in Cilicia, which I believe now is probably around where we know Turkey to be. So he's a Hellenist. Uh, that is, he is Jewish, but has been living at least part of his life outside of Jerusalem. And we mentioned that when we saw Stephen, that he may have been one of the ones debating Stephen in the synagogue of the Hellenists. At some point, though, while he is, grows and he lives in Tarsus there for a while, we know at some point in his life as a young man, he returns to Jerusalem. Uh, Acts chapter 22 tells us this. He comes back to Jerusalem as a young man, and there he begins to study under one of the greatest teachers, at least as far as the Jews knew, of the time, Gamaliel. We have seen Gamaliel already when, uh, the, in Acts chapter 5 when they're wondering what to do with these Christians, and Gamaliel seems to have great influence over the people and over the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. He is a, a very influential person, highly respected. And Saul is one of his chief students. Saul was proud of who he was and what he had done. It fueled him. It moved him. He was a zealous man. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4, he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, uh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so uh, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Saul was an upstanding person, and he knew it. He knew how, how zealously he had pursued to be right with God, at least in the Jewish sense. Because of this proud heritage he had, he had a very promising future. He would go a long way in the ranks of Judaism. The great pedigree and the influential relationships that he had developed could help him rise high in Jerusalem. He could have had power and wealth. He could have been highly influential and he was absolutely zealous in his belief. He believed with all of his being that Judaism was the way. And that fueled his hatred for the people of the way. They were opposed. They were people who were blaspheming as far as he knew. As far as he was concerned, they were saying that someone else was God, that this Jesus was God. And to him, that was absolute blasphemy, and it fueled his hatred for them. A hatred he believed was righteous hatred. All of this probably would have helped him secure a place on the Sanhedrin had he been there much longer. Here we have seen the chief of sinners and in Acts chapter 9, we see the chief of sinners come face to face with the champion of grace. When Jesus comes to meet Saul on this road to Damascus, Jesus says some very interesting things here, which begin to tell us that, that how Jesus sees this and sees the work of Saul is a personal attack. 
Probably beginning with Stephen, Saul has waged a persistent war. Your verse 1 says, then Saul still breathing threats. So this, this war on the Christians has been an ongoing thing for him. Persistently persecuting and violently persecuting the Christians. You know, we see you know, in the verses we read here in, in Acts chapter 9 that he, he drags them all away, men and women. Okay, so not just men, anybody, men and women, he is dragging away. At the end of, of Stephen's sermon, what riles them up so much is Stephen says that they are stiff-necked and hard-hearted people. Saul is the epitome of that. He will not hear they have to say he is adamant these people of the way are against god and he is going to do whatever he can to crush them in acts chapter 26 at another opportunity where he gives his testimony he says in verse 10 of acts 26 this i also did in jerusalem and many of the saints i shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priests and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He deeply believed that the cruelty he was exercising on these people was God's will. He believed it. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. And we've seen some of that zeal there. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. It is, he saw the persecution of the church as fulfilling the law, as being righteous. There is no doubt, before Saul was found by Jesus Christ, he was a horrible man. He was vicious. On the way to continue the atrocities, he is confronted by Jesus in a remarkable and unique way. And we'll soon learn that rather than, he will soon learn that rather than doing God's will, he was actually fighting against God. Jesus' words in verse 4, when he finally confronted him, says, Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, So the bright light comes from heaven. He tells us later on that this bright light, he says, it was, it was like it was brighter than the sun that shone upon him. And he heard this voice come down. And the others didn't hear the voice. They probably heard something like thunderings, it seems, from his other descriptions of it. They couldn't understand it. They knew something was going on, but they didn't know what. Only Paul could see and hear what was going on. And it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And that Lord there could be Lord or it could be Sir. At this point, he doesn't recognize who it is. It's just someone, it's a, a sign of respect. Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Those words that Jesus gives, they're, they're telling words. He doesn't ask, why are you persecuting the Christians? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? 
Paul was out killing the people of Christ, and Christ is saying, you are persecuting me. Jesus told the apostles before he left that they would be persecuted for his sake because of him. Jesus takes this personally. The persecution, the trouble that comes on the people of God, Jesus takes personally. It is a personal attack. Why? Paul would understand this later. In fact, one of the one of the most used descriptions of, by Paul of the church is the body of Christ. He uses that probably more often than any other picture he uses. And he speaks of it as the body of Christ, with Christ as its head. And it makes sense. Paul understands that what happens to the people of God happens to Christ. It affects him deeply, personally. And not only is Jesus going to save Saul, but in saving Saul, he is going to protect his people. He is easing the persecution that comes upon them. God isn't unconcerned about the pain of his people. He cares. And he will always move to protect his people. Now, if that was true of us, let's... let's so Jesus looks on, on the people of God, and they are his, his family, and, and Saul is, is persecuting and killing people that Jesus deeply loves, that Jesus died for. Imagine, imagine how you would react to someone torturing your family. If someone had, had come and had, had kidnapped some of your family and was, was torturing them and, and causing them great pain and trouble, how would we react? Maybe we would, we would act like, like Liam Neeson in, in that, that movie, I would look for you. I will hunt you down, and I will kill you. And maybe that's how most of us would initially feel. If someone hurts my family, I am going to hurt you. And maybe that's how we think maybe Jesus should feel. Saul is a bad man. He is a very bad man. He has inflicted great pain on Christ. He has inflicted great pain on the people of Christ. Now imagine, with all of that that he has been doing, all of the people he has imprisoned, the men and the women he has helped to kill and destroy, and now he gets this vision, and it's Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm the one you're persecuting. Imagine what is going to go through his head. I'm in trouble. I have been killing these people, and I am in trouble. I'm going to be judged, and I've got a lot coming at me. But Jesus doesn't come to judge. Jesus doesn't come to Paul to judge, despite the great atrocities that he has done. Jesus comes to rescue Saul. He comes to rescue him. He is offering forgiveness and grace. Here we see powerful forgiveness. Paul wasn't just a murderer. He was a mass murderer. He was a terrorist. Forgiveness of salvation is deeper than any sin. Right? We think of we think of when we think of Saul, we think of Paul, the great missionary. And all he did. But before that, he was, he was atrocious. 
He was the epitome of evil. And thinking that in, the, in that evil, he was doing good. He thought he was earning his way to heaven by the atrocities he performed. And the forgiveness of God comes to a man that deeply sinful. Modern history, it would be like, like a light shining down on someone like, like Hitler or Osama bin Laden and, and saving them right there despite the mass murdering they have done. It's no different. Saul is a bad man and he deserves Jesus to come on that road, shine the light on him and kill him right there. But Jesus doesn't come to bring judgment. He brings rescue. He brings rescue. Consider the people in your life that you might think are beyond forgiveness. The drug dealer, neighbor. Kirsten listens to a, a, a podcast of a, a pastor and his, his wife. And they told us a story recently. They, they had a drug dealer move in next door to them. And at first, uh, the, he says, yeah, don't want a drug dealer living next to me. And then he decided, well, I can be upset that a drug dealer lives next to me, or I can make the drug dealer upset that he moved in next door to a pastor. He saw opportunity to serve and to witness, and they did. Maybe it's the, the racist Maybe it's the person that's constantly mocking your faith. Maybe it's the, the, the scientists or the atheists or whoever you think, well, they're, they're, they're never going to believe. These people are, are against us. Who is it that you've thought they're beyond saving? I can't see how that's going to happen. No one is outside the reaches of God's grace. No one is outside the reaches of of God's grace. This has been a major theme of Luke's gospel and of Acts. The wideness of God's mercy and his grace. Paul knew that he had received grace. He says later when he's writing to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, he recounts, these things and he says I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry although I was formerly a blasphemer a persecutor and an insolent man but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. You read those words now, right? You read those words knowing who Paul was before. The grace of God was exceedingly abundant. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy. That in me first, Jesus might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. He says, God saved me as an example, as a pattern, that God can save anyone. The depths of God's mercy. 
all those things he thought made him acceptable, he counted as rubbish. Now he was the recipient of God's righteousness. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7, Paul says, But what things were gained to me? Remember what he thought was gain? He thought everything was gain. He thought persecuting the Christians was gain. He thought having a pedigree of having a, a, a Pharisee father was gain. He thought keeping every part of the law was gain. He thought being the strictest of the Pharisees was gain. He thought studying under the, the most influential uh, leader in Gamaliel was gain. But those things which were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the way of rescue. Jesus is the way of reconciliation. Verse 7 of our text, after he is initially met by Jesus and Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? Why do you keep on with this it says and the men who journeyed with him stood speechless hearing a voice but seeing no one then saw arose from the ground and when his eyes were opened he saw no one but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus and he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank he had been confronted by Christ in this moment of confrontation by Christ we find we find a patient pursuit you remember last week when we talked about the ethiopian and we noted how god had been preparing the ethiopian and preparing him that god had been in pursuit of that ethiopian and brought uh, uh, um, philip to him at the time he needed we're seeing the same thing here with saul we are seeing god who is in pursuit of people it is a patient pursuit in verse 5, you know, where, where Jesus confronts him and speaks to him, he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. That is, the, the goads of the prick. So it's that idea of, of poking on the livestock and, and getting them to move. Those stubborn animals don't move, and, and you poke them to get them to move on. It seems that from that statement there, that this is not the first time that Saul has been confronted by his need for Jesus. That God has been convicting and God has been working in Saul, but Saul continued to refuse. Saul was running, but Jesus was following, pursuing. We see God's patience. We see his persistence. Saul kept rejecting. He, he heard what the disciples would say when they, they spoke to the Sanhedrin and said, we're going to serve Jesus. He heard what Stephen said when Stephen preached that message. He heard Jesus there and refused again. And he just kept refusing and refusing and refusing. And God patiently pursues. 
slowly. Maybe we've been running. Maybe we know people who've been running. Refusing to believe Jesus and hardening our heart. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are. Or how long you have been running from God. Maybe you are as callous as Saul. You can be forgiven. Maybe you live a clean life. A good life trusting in our own goodness. Jesus will give you the perfect righteousness. Stop running. There's a patient pursuit here in this confrontation. There is a painful truth. What does it mean to stop running? To stop running from, from Christ? How can I be forgiven? If I, if I say we need to stop running and we need to listen, what does that mean to stop running? Same way that Paul was is the same way we all are. Come face to face with Jesus. I don't mean that you have to have a vision or anything like that, but see Jesus as he is, as he shows himself in the Bible, as he teaches us. Honestly, look at ourselves in the light of what God says, that we are sinners. That our sin puts us at odds with God. Saul even thought he was on God's side, but in reality, he was on the opposite side to God. Christians, we're known as people of the way because we believe that Jesus is the only way to life. My good works, my zealousness, my driven life aren't earning me favor with God. We must recognize that I need Jesus. And this, this is a painful truth. Acknowledging my pride. Do you think it was easy for Saul to come to that point where everything he had built his life on, everything that he had, had so cherished in all of his life, that pedigree he had, all of the work he put in to being influential and finding his way in this, this system of, of Judaism, do you think it was easy for him to put all that aside? He looked at it and says, this, this, this is who I am. This is everything I have longed to be. And I've got to put that aside for Jesus. I've got to get rid of it. So when Paul says in Philippians 3 that he counts it as rubbish to gain Christ, that was not an easy moment. He had to look at everything he thought was him, everything that made him proud of who he was and say, it's not worth it. Jesus is. Accept the forgiveness of God. In the confrontation, Paul is called to follow. Where he had a promising future before, now he has a promise-filled future. In his pride, Saul thought he had promise before him. He could have been influential. He could have had riches. He probably would have ended up on the Sanhedrin. One of the great rulers of, of Israel. But all of that is ultimately empty. In Jesus, he would find real hope. Real purpose. In verse 6, it says, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Jesus says, Go. There's life and there's purpose. For Saul, that purpose was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Jesus is the way 
to fullness of life, to eternal joy, to happiness. Salvation brings you into a relationship with Christ to walk with him. We are reconciled to God and we we walk with him through this life. It's part of why we're called people of the way. We know where we're headed. We know why. We know who we will do it with. You might not you might say, well, you know, I, I'm I'm not Paul. We can't all be called to change the world like like Paul. No, but our purpose remains the same. Having been brought into a relationship with God, we walk with him through this life to the end. In Saul, we see a prompt obedience. Saul's response is true of everyone who comes to Christ. So he, trembling, it says in verse 6, and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Yes, Jesus, whatever you want. To recognize Jesus as Savior is to recognize him as Lord. Say whatever. You are bought with a price, so live for him. Saul started following Jesus here. And he did not stop until the day he died. Till the moment his faith became sight. Saul became a person of the way. This is the life of Christianity. When we get saved, it is the beginning of our journey in following Christ. That journey will involve suffering and it will involve loss, but it will also involve the great joy and satisfaction that only God can give. Jesus calls each of us to walk with him and to work with him. Jesus is the way of rescue. Jesus is the way of reconciliation. And finally, we see that Jesus is the way of reception, acceptance. Considered family, there is in these last verses, Acts from verse 17 onward, where, where Paul interacts with Ananias. Ananias comes to him to, to, to help him. Some great things it says in verse 17, And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hand on him, he said, Brother Saul, Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. We see here the promise of God. Ananias is a great example. When he first hears God's instructions, he is understandably cautious. But God, you know Saul. He's a killer. And he is here in my city to try and kill me. Ananias, it's okay. He's one of mine. Ananias follows. He has been chosen. He's been called by God. One of the great promises of God in salvation is that those who believe become family. 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. When God rescues you and reconciles you, he also receives you into his family. And so, as the people of the way, we need to practice love. This, this moment when they meet is one of the most precious moments in all of Scripture. You, you can see it, can't you? Based on God's promise, Ananias overcomes his fear 
and his anxiety and he courageously obeys and he goes to meet this one who came to Damascus to cause problems and he comes into that house and he puts his arm around him and he does not just say Saul he says brother Saul family family Ananias has accepted Saul based on God's promise This is how we're to respond as people of the way. If God accepts someone, so do we. In this, we follow Christ. By this, we will know that we are my disciples, Jesus says, if you love one another. And so Paul connects with the family. He connects with the family. He proclaims his identity. And just like the Ethiopian in the desert with Philip, so Paul, when he hears from Ananias, is baptized. Now, don't, don't, don't just read it and say, well, he got baptized. That's great. Do you, do you understand what that means for Saul? Saul has come from Jerusalem to Damascus to kill Christians. Now, he is outright in the open saying, these are my people. These are my people. He enters into Damascus to persecute. He will then leave Damascus as the persecuted. We'll see that at the end of chapter 9. He's now on the run. He identifies with the God's people. This was no small thing. He participates with your family. He stays. And he learns and he listens to the people. Saul begins a practice that will be kept by him his whole life. He binds himself to the people of God immediately. They embrace him and he embraces them. He doesn't keep his distance. He doesn't try to go it alone. Together they will encourage and equip Saul's circumstances may be extraordinary, but the principles are universal. God seeks to save us. We must believe Jesus for salvation and give our lives to follow him. There may only be one way of salvation, and that way may be narrow, but it is not lonely. The people of the way walk together. Saul reminds us that though it may not be as dark as his, we all have a dark side. Sin. No matter how dark that sin may look, it is not so dark that the light of the gospel cannot penetrate it. Are we clinging to our efforts to give hope in future? Jesus came to rescue, to save. The time for judgment will come, but that is not now. Jesus is reaching out in grace to rescue. When you believe him, he will bring you to himself and he will walk with you. You will be received into his family eternally, adopted as his child with all of the blessings of family, You will have the fellowship of brothers and sisters to walk you along the way. We are a people of the way on a journey to a glorious end. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these examples in Scripture. We thank you for what they teach us and what they show us. Lord, indeed, the title to be people of the way is a precious one to hold close. It says so much about who we are and what you have done for us. Help us, dear God, as people of the way to be to be like Ananias. To be people who trust you with open arms and open hearts to see the gospel and to receive people into the family. Dear God, help us as we follow you on the way. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.